Hi everyone, Bread and Goods is sponsored by Works in Progress, the online magazine. I really enjoy reading Works in Progress and my favorite piece of theirs has been the housing theory of everything. In the piece, the authors provide astounding evidence for why a huge swath of our social ills are caused by our inability to build more housing. It's a pretty mind-blowing piece if you've never read it. You can find their works online on worksinprogress.co. The link is in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of the Bretton Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to Soham Shankran, who runs PopWax, which develops mRNA vaccines in uh, India. Uh, hi, Soham. Uh, glad to have you on. Yeah, hello. Hi, Pradima. Good to be here. What does PopWax do and why is it important? So PopWax makes broadly protective mRNA vaccines on our uh, mRNA LNP platform. So what that means is essentially we try to design vaccines that can be protective, not just against one pathogen, like say SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, um, but uh, a whole host of interrelated, uh, you know, similar pathogens in a single vaccine. And we make those on our own mRNA lipid nanoparticle delivery platform, which allows us to very quickly make new vaccines and customize uh, or update older vaccines. Both of the uh, mRNA vaccines we have for COVID-19 were developed in, you know, partially in Germany and in the U.S. for Pfizer and uh, almost entirely in the U.S. for Moderna. Uh, why? And, you know, India is a country you might expect to develop such vaccines. There was a there, there have been two uh, Indian vaccines, uh, although one was uh, developed in the UK. India actually has uh, quite large ma uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity, and yet we've seen no Indian mRNA vaccines. Why, why was that uh, during COVID? So I'd be remiss if I didn't slightly correct you there. There is actually, mm -hmm. I think technically not even approved an Indian mRNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, it's manufactured by a company called Genova, based in Pune. Okay. Um, they, there's a little bit of a sort of tortured history, and I'm just speaking from the public record here. They were working with a company called HDT Bio based in Seattle. Um, that, uh, and then at some point, there's been an intellectual property dispute about who actually developed that vaccine. Um, but uh, at any rate, it hasn't been uh, yet, I think, commercially deployed in India, even though I think it was approved uh, either this year or earlier or late last year. Um, but I think the, 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 that's sort of the right question, which is to say, uh, What's going on uh, that there wasn't sort of a flood of uh, vaccines in India on new platforms that actually worked, that actually you know had good results and were commercially deployable? Uh, and I think that really comes to sort of the the, the key issue that I think perhaps uh, most people don't know about India's sort of much vaunted pharmaceutical industry, which is that it doesn't do any research, right? Um, and that's not quite true. There is some research going on, and certainly there's lots of work on, you know, making, uh, you know, synthesis of certain target molecules more efficient, uh, on making manufacturing more efficient and cheaper, all of which is important. Um, but in general, the business model of Indian pharmaceutical companies, and that includes our vaccine companies, by the way, is not to spend money on, uh, on R&D, um, but rather to use existing technologies um, or uh, make generics uh, for uh, or biosimilars, which are basically uh, kind of copies of uh, of drugs that have come off patent, um, and then sell them at relatively lower prices, whether it's in the United States or in Europe uh, or or here in India at considerably lower prices, um, or to you know other developing country markets via the route of WHO pre-qualification, um, and and that's been a very successful business for India. Um, it's it's something that's allowed us to uh, you know, not only uh, provide lots of, um, of of import medications at low prices to our people, but also all across the world, right? You know, uh, uh, by volume uh, prior to COVID, uh, you know, the majority of, of vaccines uh, distributed globally were Indian. Um, you know, a big, big chunk of generics even in the United States are Indian. Um, and while there, you know, certainly there have been safety issues that have been highlighted with some of these products in the recent past, um, you know, many of them are, uh, are very safe and, and effective and have been able to reduce the cost of healthcare globally. That's very important. Um, but that second step, right, that second step to go from, okay, I'm a, I'm a generics player. I make billions of dollars a year selling generics. Perhaps now it's time to make novel products of my own. Uh, that step, while people have kind of hesitantly moved in that direction, hasn't really happened um, for our biggest uh, biotech and, and pharma companies, whether you're talking about Serum Institute on the vaccine side, 
uh, or Dr. Reddy's uh, labs uh, or, or Biocon. Um, and uh, and that kind of reflects in in the size of uh, uh, in the size of the industry. So you know most of the money globally in pharma is in novel products, right? Because obviously uh, you know products that are not novel have a lower margin because many people can make them um, or are allowed to make them. And so if you add up you know all of the top fifty listed Indian pharma companies, uh, they make about thirty billion dollars in, in yearly revenue. Um, and that's substantially all of it. You, Serum Institute also makes a few billion dollars in revenue, but that adding up that, that's substantially all of the revenue that's uh, around in, uh, in Indian Pharma. Uh, whereas Pfizer, just one company, um, makes about $80 billion in, in revenue per year. So the Indian Pharma industry by global standards is very, very small um, and, and from, a, from a financial perspective. And that's because of this, uh, this distinction. And, um, you know, even though the, so, so uh, of course, an American company, which has the same levels of revenue and profit as an Indian one, would you expect the equivalent one there to be doing a lot more research and development? As in, uh, the numbers you cite are small relative to the global pharmaceutical industry, but not so small that they cannot support research and development. What is the reason behind this? So R&D is very expensive. Um, so let me let me uh, let me not uh, pull any punches there. It costs billions of dollars to get a new drug to market globally, right? And that's much more if you want to bring that drug to market in the United States or in Europe or in a developed market. Um, so so it is a non-trivial amount of money. So you look at our biggest pharma companies in India make single-digit billions of dollars of revenue a year, right? Up to ten maximum, right? Um, and you know that's not enough to support a, a Pfizer-scale sort of R&D program, right? Um, uh, uh, nevertheless, yes, uh, there is absolutely the possibility uh, of investing in R&D. Uh, and, uh, and I think really it comes down to a mindset problem, which is to say, uh, I don't think Indian pharmaceutical company owners uh, are comfortable with technical risk. Um, I think they, uh, they don't see themselves as able to uh, fully understand uh, you know, what, what sort of new science and technology is involved in, in entirely new products. And because of its unpredictability, you know, you, you try a hundred different things, maybe one product is successful or even less than that is able to sort of actually move from the clinic to deployment. Um, that's just not a kind of technical risk that Indian companies have the stomach for. And I would say that's not just true in pharma. I mean, you look at, uh, you look at uh, the, the Indian startup landscape, right? Where's the actual hard tech innovation there? We're starting to see some now, right? Um, but, um, but, you know, doing like truly new science, new technology, like we, we, you know, Indian companies just don't do that. Um, if you uh, even look at some of the, the hard tech success stories, right. Uh, your say Skyroot aerospace, which has its uh, sort of Vikram rockets. Those are largely, uh, you know, based on ISRO technology that's been around for quite a long time. It's good that they've translated that into the private sector, but, it, but it's, it's stuff that already exists. Right. Um, and the, the vast majority of startup funding in India goes to companies that, um, you know, that do uh, stuff like five minute grocery delivery or, you know, another social media app or whatever. There's no, um, there's no billions of dollars going into, into hard tech um, in the country. Uh, and, and that's true with our largest uh, corporate uh, players as well. You look at your, uh, your Reliance Group and, um, you know, Tata's, Birla's, whatever. Uh, you know, if, if you look at Korea, you look at Japan, uh, the sort of cables and the the large uh, you know sort of conglomerates in Japan uh, kind of took that next step. They went and and invested in new technologies. Um, they invested in semiconductor. They invested in chemicals. You know they invested in um, you know in uh, in in stuff that uh, that made them market leaders technologically, right? Not just sort of low cost manufacturers, um, right? Samsung's fabs are some of the best in the world. Samsung's displays are the best in the world, right? Um, and uh, and we just you know our our conglomerates just haven't done that um, and so I think that's that's pervasive across across India um, that there's no appetite for technical risk um, there's a, a sort of more short termist mindset when it comes to uh, investment when it comes to kind of return on capital um, and I think we suffer as a as a result of it um, and so you know uh, I when I started this company uh, the intent was actually not to uh, start a company. The intent was to uh, work with uh, Indian pharmaceutical companies with the Indian government um, to try and get funding for what I saw as essential, which is 
uh, to build a, a mechanism by which new vaccines uh, and updated vaccines in particular for COVID, but also for other diseases could be uh, sort of built on, you know, indigenous Indian owned platforms quickly uh, and, uh, and rigorously. And, and that's something where neither the government, um, which is another big part of this ecosystem, right? A big part of the reason that uh, American companies, Western companies are able to, to innovate is because they're able to take uh, benefit of the, the huge amount of money invested by their governments into university labs, um, into small companies, which are, which are working on innovative products, and then buy up those, uh, that IP and, and, and sort of translate that uh, into the field. But neither the government nor industry uh, were, was willing to, uh, to kind of invest even relatively small amounts of money, even single digit millions of dollars, um, in trying to build sort of new platforms, in particular, uh, an entirely new mRNA platform um, uh, and an entirely new sort of antigen design platform uh, in uh, in the country, and and that's kind of why I started it because it, you know, I went to uh, the big Indian pharma companies, I went to the big Indian vaccine companies, um, and there just wasn't the the risk appetite to do it, and and that's not something that that's unique to uh, uh, to me or or to to what I was asking for. Uh, if you're familiar with, are you familiar at all with the story of Shanta Biotechnics? Um, I'm not. I know very little about biotech so, in general. So so Shanta was a company that was started in the 90s, in the early 90s in Hyderabad. And the story of it actually in some ways parallels my own. So there's a, there's a guy called Varaprasad Reddy, who was an electronics engineer who was working on batteries for the Indian military. Um, he ended up at a World Health Organization conference in Geneva by accident in, in the early 90s. I think he was on his honeymoon or some kind of vacation trip. <laughs> um, and there he was deeply frustrated by uh, constant claims made by the folks there that it didn't make any sense to invest in uh, you know, Indian companies uh, that might be able to make at the time hepatitis B vaccines, which is a sort of big, a big issue in India and globally, because these vaccines use recombinant DNA technology to sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, create a, uh, an engineered plasmid to produce a, a protein antigen. Uh, and there was a, a general belief that Indian companies were not going to be able to do that. And there's no point, you know, rather just pay the big foreign companies money to, to provide vaccines to India, if, if at all. Um, and he didn't believe this was the case. And so he came to, uh, you know, he came to India, uh, uh, you know, sort of full of, uh, of, of hope that he would be able to convince, uh, again, big pharma companies that it made sense to, um, to actually go and do this, that this was possible. And he had no bio experience either. He was just convinced that there was no reason that Indian scientists couldn't do this. Um, and, you know, he had meetings again with all of the major Indian pharma companies with folks in the Indian government, and there was just no money, um, you know, no money and no support available effectively. And he had a meeting uh, uh, with Kalam Anjiredi, who was the, uh, uh, you know, the founder and then head of Dr. Reddy's labs, um, you know, who told him basically India will, will get to this in five or 10 years when its patents are over and it's a generic and, you know, right now we just, it's too risky to do this in India, too much technical risk. And ironically, I had a similar meeting with, with the uh, with the uh, with the with the current management of Dr. Reddy's, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, when I was starting this company, uh, and I was trying to uh, to work with them to uh, to potentially sort of bring this this platform to the market. Uh, so it, I think these attitudes kind of haven't changed. We we haven't sort of taken that step forward from uh, from generics, from uh, from doing what's kind of cheap and low margin uh, to to actually innovating and being on the frontier of science. So can you tell me briefly, I know you will have a longer post about this. Uh, how did you go from what you were doing before to uh, starting? What is a novel business? So I, you know, I think um, basically the story is again, one of frustration. So I, um, I was running a, a YC backed company in the US. I'd taken leave um, or rather, I was, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I sort of uh, moved out of my, my PhD program um, and, uh, uh, and I was working on this startup to build software for physical processes um, that eventually sort of narrowed down to manufacturing as the, as the key uh, uh, sort of thing we were going to focus on, which was, so the intent was to build a programming language to run physical processes that you could write just as easily as you write code for, um, for an app um, to allow for uh, kind of uh, quick reconfiguration of, of factories uh, and to allow for them to run end-to-end -end in this kind of uh, version controlled manner. And uh, I moved that company when the pandemic kind of really hit in March of 2020 to India um, because I 
uh, wasn't sure I would be able to get permission to go into factories in the US um, and, and, and sort of install this. In India, I knew that I had people that I could reach out to that would uh, potentially allow me to do that. Um, and also because I uh, wanted to be closer to family and closer to uh, you know, potential sort of levers of change in the country in case the pandemic got really bad, which obviously it did. Uh, in order to be able to help on on policy or you know sort of make suggestions that I that I thought could be valuable to uh, to aid our response. Um, and uh, uh, when I returned, what I found was that it was just very very hard to move whether it's the government's policy response or private companies' response uh, to the pandemic very much at all. Um, you know, despite uh, presenting, I think, quite compelling data. Uh, and initially, this was, uh, you know, I, I kind of started uh, by pushing uh, for the government to approve rapid antigen tests, um, you know, at-home rapid antigen tests, which weren't approved in India until, I think it was into 2021, until, until we eventually got approval. They were quite um, popular in Singapore, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and they, I mean, they're very popular in India now and, and globally, but the Indian government... Um, and the, the COVID task force of the Indian government just didn't want to approve them. Uh, and this struck me as being insane because obviously they're very, I think, useful. They're not perfect, but they're a very useful part of the arsenal um, of sort of, uh, of weapons that we have against the disease. Because if you can test yourself on a regular basis, or in particular, if you feel like you're having symptoms, but you know, more broadly, even asymptomatically, if you've potentially had exposure or there's a relatively high burden of the disease in your area, um, then that gives you the ability to know if you're a potential uh, sort of uh, transmitter of the disease and kind of just stay home, um, not interact with people. Uh, and that's something that can be done passively that, you know, doesn't require you to take the step of reporting your status to the government, which people were and still are uh, afraid of doing. Uh, it's something that, you know, that can have a very significant incremental impact. And the government just didn't want to approve these tests. And I, you know, what I found out kind of unofficially was that the, the line was um, Indians are not capable of using these tests. They will mess up. And, um, and so we would rather that they not have access at all. Um, and, and this struck me as being obviously nonsensical because I think the alternative is not that people will be you know, more careful. The alternative is that people will be less careful and they'll just go out and spread the disease, which is in fact actually what happened. Um, and so I wrote an op-ed in the Times of India. I spoke to a number of government officials about this. I spoke to folks in state governments. I spoke to private companies to try to convince them to, to push this and to at least do that within the confines of their companies, which is something that they were allowed to do. Um, and you know, I, I think that was a mixed bag of whether it was a success or not. We were able to eventually, I think, be part of a coalition that, um, uh, that, that pushed for the government to approve these tests and, and actually broadly uh, sort of advocate for their use. Uh, and I think a lot of private companies also kind of bought it and eventually started uh, uh, using these tests routinely to screen their employees before they came into work. So I think hopefully that had some impact, less impact than I hoped it would. I thought it would have a very significant impact if implemented right at the beginning of the pandemic before it spread like wildfire across India. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but, uh, but it was good that it did happen to the extent that it did. And I was glad that I was able to have at least some small role in it. Um, and I think one of the things that I'd advocated for, uh, you know, around those tests was basically, can we have a, a kind of moonshot project to massively reduce the cost of these tests? So can we make it such that we can give a year's supply of these tests to everybody at the beginning of the year? Um, and it's sort of cheap enough that they can just test themselves every day. And we have a very, very good shot of detecting a large number of potential asymptomatic carriers of the disease. Um, and uh, that, you know, didn't, I don't think we were able to reduce the cost as much as I would have wanted, but in doing so, I kind of got involved more deeply within the machinery of, um, you know, of, uh, uh, of these diagnostics companies. And I was already running a manufacturing software company, so that was also a way in. Um, and at one point, I actually seriously contemplated uh, basically, uh, you know, starting a nonprofit diagnostic test manufacturing company, which eventually ended up not happening. Um, but, uh, but, you know, trying to sort of get more deeply involved and just actually solve the problem rather than simply writing white papers or, or op-eds to try and advocate for somebody else to solve it. Um, and I think that, you know, that strain of, of work led me to look at other potential policy uh, issues or sort of you know, issues with the response that were happening, because I was quite sure this was, this was not the correct decision that they made early on. Um, and, and I was then you know, curious about whether there were other serious issues with, with the way that our government or that our companies were responding. 
Um, and what immediately hit me was, uh, and, and this was, you know, we were starting to see now the emergence of the Delta variant, which emerged in Maharashtra, you know, where I grew up and where I was living at the time. Um, uh, as I was in Pune working with, uh, with factories in Pune, and it literally, it emerged, you know, kilometers from where I was living. Um, and it was fairly obvious to me that we were going to see, uh, you know, the evolution of this virus uh, relatively rapidly, potentially more rapidly than people expected. Uh, and the existing vaccines, which had, you know, kind of towards the end of 2020, we were just starting to see those vaccines, uh, you know, get approval and start to get distributed, were potentially not going to be able to cope. And we were already seeing evidence of this back uh, in, in late 2020, um, you know, and, and, and by early 2021, I think the evidence was, was quite strong. Uh, uh, and uh, and that, uh, that sort of convinced me that we need to be working on ways to update our vaccines. Uh, and that inevitably led me to the conclusion that the two vaccines that were most deployed in India, which was uh, the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine um, as manufactured by the Serum Institute, uh, uh, which uh, in India, uh, I, I forget what, what it was called, uh, Covishield, it was called Covishield, and, uh, in, uh, and Covaxin, which was a vaccine made by Bharat Biotech, which is an inactivated virus vaccine. Both of these vaccines uh, require essentially the growth of a virus. In the case of the Bharat Biotech vaccine, that's, that's COVID, that's the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. In the case of the Covishield vaccine made by uh, 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 the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine made by Serum Institute, uh, that is uh, an adenovirus vector, a different virus um, that then encodes the spike protein of, of SARS-CoV-2. Both of those require the growth of virus in, in cell culture, in particular in mammalian cell culture. And what I learned uh, from, in part coincidentally, being around uh, uh, you know, that sort of biomanufacturing ecosystem at the time was that this was not going particularly well. Uh, scaling mammalian cell culture is a very, very hard problem. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, it has uh, sort of unexpected results often. So basically you think, okay, it's working well at flask scale, it's working well, um, you know, maybe at, uh, at sort of small reactor scale. Now I wanna scale this up to a big reactor and suddenly it stops working, right? And you kind of don't know why. And so you have to go back and re-optimize. And this is what happened uh, to the Serum Institute uh, in, in kind of late 2020, early 2021, their scale-up process um, of the, uh, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine kind of failed. Um, and they had to kind of go and restart it or at least sort of go back to an earlier phase um, and start scaling up again. And the result of that was kind of at the peak of the Delta wave, which was sort of in, I want to say April-ish of, of 2021. And I, I have a graph here I can just pull up. Um, but in, that fits in with my memory too, yeah. April yeah, so I just want to make sure that I get this right because I don't want to say something inaccurate. Um, so the, the peak of the of the cases and the graph that I'm looking at here um, was in uh, yeah in uh, uh, in kind of yeah May end April early May 2021. Uh, at that same time, uh, our uh, deployment of vaccine doses actually fell. So there's this, this wild graph that I would be including in this post where you see as the cases go up, our, act, our vaccine deployment starts to fall. And the reason for that is basically there was a scaling issue. And so, you know, that scaling issue, you know, a few months before resulted in the supply of vaccines not being available when they were kind of most needed. And given that we know these vaccines take, uh, a, you know, a few months, ideally, uh, to uh, first you need to get a booster, but you know it takes a few months to develop the the correct uh, level of immune response to actually have uh, significant resistance to the virus. Uh, that probably caused a lot of incremental deaths that that didn't need to happen. And seeing that happen live is really what convinced me that something needed to to be done differently. And I think what needed to be done differently was was mRNA and other platforms like it. So nucleic acid platforms are not like um, you know, these, these cell culture platforms where you have to have these giant bioreactors and giant, you know, sort of football field size facilities, um, you can actually make mRNA vaccines relatively, uh, you know, in a sort of more synthetic way. Uh, it's, it's almost chemistry rather than biology. Uh, it's sort of enzyme catalyzed, but it's, it's basically chemistry. Um, and you can do it, uh, you can scale it up much more deterministically, you can scale it down much more deterministically, and you can change the sequence that you're putting into an mRNA vaccine 
without worrying that suddenly my manufacturing process isn't going to work. Because again, with the cell culture based process, you are infecting cells, um, uh, you know, with uh, with this virus, uh, and you are you're you're hoping to sort of harvest more of the virus as it um, as it uh, uh, as it sort of is produced in these cells. And changing the sequence of that virus can have you know very unclear sort of nonlinear consequences on your yield and on your ability to produce that. And you don't know ahead of time what that's going to be, right? Because it's so finicky and and sort of so uh, subtle as a system. Whereas with mRNA. Again, almost it's a chemical synthesis process. Changing the sequence does have some impact on yield, but not catastrophic impacts on yield. Um, and so what that means is you can A, scale up mRNA much more deterministically. Um, and this was pretty much already clear by early 2021, given the success of Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech, which had never actually you know, manufactured mRNA at scale. Nobody had, but they were still being more successful than uh, the biggest vaccine company in the world in terms of volume serum. Um, and it was clear that technologically, if we want to update these vaccines, I mean, we, we saw the Delta wave and, you know, soon after was the Omicron wave. If we wanted to update these vaccines, really the only way to do it was to switch to a, a nucleic acid platform. Uh, so Serum is currently, I think, working on an updated version of the Oxford vaccine for Omicron, um, but we're now in 2023. So it's taking quite a while and may not be priority for them, but it's certainly taking quite a while. Whereas in the United States, we've already seen the introduction of uh, you know, BA2 and BA4, BA5 boosters, which are uh, updated for, uh, for new Omicron strains. Um, and so that kind of platform deficiency of what we were using in India, um, I, again, I think it was very obvious quite early on, even to me as a non-biologist. And, uh, and it, was, it seemed obvious to me that in fact, the Indian government and Indian companies should be dumping as much money as they can into this platform, not just for COVID, but because it's obvious that these advantages would also, um, you know, uh, sort of continue to be the case, or it seemed quite likely for new vaccines against other diseases, as well as other potential pandemics down the road, right? Um, and it's, it seems fairly obvious to me that there are going to be other pandemics in our lifetime. I would hope that we're able to largely prevent them or stop them before they become as serious as SARS-CoV-2 has with the new tools that we have. But certainly it seems to me that, you know, we're going to see uh, zoonotic diseases uh, that have pandemic potential show up in human populations. So this seemed like an ideal time to, to kind of, you know, uh, restock our arsenal with those tools. Mm. Um, but as I said before, when I went to the Indian government and when I went to Indian companies, there was not really any forthcoming support, immediate support um, to do that. Uh, and, and I had assembled kind of by that point, a team of scientists, both in India uh, and in the US, including Moderna's first director of chemistry, a guy called Saib Siddiqui, who now works for us there, um, including uh, folks like Riju Das at Stanford, who uh, you know, doesn't work for us, but uh, works uh, extensively on, uh, uh, you know, on mRNA, mRNA secondary structure, on designing better mRNA. Uh, uh, folks like Shahid Jamil, who used to run India's INSACOG task force, India's sequencing task force during COVID, um, who were all sort of in support of this idea and were willing to almost for free work together uh, to assist whether it's the government or a pharmaceutical company to go and build this kind of new mRNA platform. Um, a platform where, by the way, because it's so new, suddenly we in India, we have the opportunity to leapfrog potentially what has been done in the West, right? Um, we don't just have to play catch up. We can actually go ahead of, of what's already happened. It's the because UPI of biology. It's huh? the UPI of biology. Sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's... it's a decent analogy with respect to jumping past them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We can, you know, it's a, a sort of platform shift that we can, you know, we can be at the forefront of. Um, and that, you know, given uh, given the fact that actually a lot of the people who, who enable the platform in the first place are Indian, right? Suhaib, who I mentioned uh, just a minute ago, invented the, or was one of the inventors on the N1-methylsuduridine uh, sort of substitution that's used in both these vaccines uh, that builds on the, the pioneering work of Kariko and, and Weissman um, that enabled this entire field in, in a way in the first place. Uh, Suhib is very much Indian, you know, right? you know very much educated in India. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as he said to me many times, it's not like getting on the plane made him any smarter, right? It's just that the resources aren't there in India to do the kind of work that he ended up doing at Moderna. Um, and he, Suhib actually spent a lot of time during the pandemic uh, pushing back against the current Moderna CEO, Stefan Bansell, um, and, and folks at BioNTech and Pfizer who were saying basically India doesn't have the capability to do mRNA. And so he said, you know, I'm one of the key 
reasons you can do these products at all. And I'm very much, you know, my capabilities are very much, you know, a capabilities of an Indian person. Um, it, it's really a, a sort of resource uh, constraint problem. And so, uh, how much? How much? Sorry, so, I, 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 I remember hearing the the IP debate, which was that you know, uh, Pfizer and Moderna didn't want it. governments in developing countries like India, Indonesia wanted um, Pfizer and Moderna to license their IP to Indian man, uh, manufacturers, you know. And Pfizer right. and Moderna said, "Well, we like you know the 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 first argument was no, but even if we do license it, you'll never be able to produce it." How how correct you know what's your take on this situation? So let me let me read you a quote from Stefan Bansell, like the the guy uh, the 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 Moderna CEO, current Moderna mm-hmm. CEO, um, which which I think I can directly rebut. So so here's a quote: In May 2021, there is no idle mRNA manufacturing capacity in the world. This is a new technology. You cannot go hire people who know how to make the mRNA. Those people don't exist. And then even if all those things were available, whoever wants to do mRNA vaccines will have to buy the machine, invent the manufacturing process, invest in the verification process, analytical processes. This doesn't happen in six or 12 or 18 months. So the imprecision of that statement should give you a sense that Bansell is not a scientist. Um, but let me say that was in May, 2021. We are in April, 2023. Um, you know, We have gone and done this for single digit millions of dollars. We have made a new mRNA LNP file. Right, we have uh, you know built a, a GMP manufacturing process. We've consulted with the US FDA on that process and made improvements to that process on, on, on the basis of what they've said. We've invested in analytical and verification processes, and we're going to take this to a clinical trial in the United States, right? For a product that is not just as every bit as good as the Moderna and BioNTech products, but actually better because it, the intent is to give protection against all of the extant SARS-CoV-2 variants, but also other beta coronaviruses in the same genus. Uh, including SARS-1 and MERS-CoV. And that's the aim. We're not sure we'll get there, but that's that's what the product was designed to do. Um, and we've done that in the time frame that he said wasn't wasn't possible. I mean, like he's basically directly and, and obviously wrong. And not only have we done that, but actually there are other country, uh, companies uh, and research labs, for example, in Thailand, um, uh, Kiat Ratsarang Tams Group, for example, uh, at Chula, Chulalongkorn University, uh, have done uh, you know similar things too. So absolute nonsense, right? And it was obvious that it was nonsense from the very beginning, um, but the intent of course was to discourage and successfully to discourage funders um, from putting money into Indian companies, uh, you know, uh, third world com- uh, companies and, and institutions that, that claimed they could do this. I actually asked for funding for a project like this from a very prominent um, Silicon Valley billionaire um, who had had some, you know, patchy contact with in the past. And he went and asked a friend for advice about whether this is something that was possible in India. And the friend that he asked was actually Nubar Afayan, who is the guy who runs flagship pioneering, which is Moderna's biggest investor. Um, and that kind of started and incubated Moderna. And obviously his answer was no, not possible in India, right? Uh, and that's kind of, of course, that's what they're gonna say, right? And they're very wrong, like very, very wrong. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I think Bogus clearly intended to uh, protect their intellectual property rights, clearly intended to protect their commercial interests. Um, and in many ways, it reminds me of the AIDS crisis. So uh, mm-hmm. this is a story I think a lot of people are not very familiar with. But so you know that in 1995, basically the triple therapy, you know, mm-hmm. antiretroviral cocktail yep. for, for AIDS kind of revolutionized um, AIDS care in America. Yeah, I, I think you can live with AIDS now for approximately average human. You, you'll die of something else, basically, yeah, most of it, right? right? And in, in America in 1995, in the year this treatment was introduced, this, this incredible public health success, 50% of deaths were reduced within one year. So mm-hmm. if you look at the graph of deaths, it goes up, 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 and boom, it falls 50% and then continues to fall incrementally mm-hmm. over the next half decade or so. Um, and this is you know, obviously very excellent news, right? Then you go look at Africa. And in Africa, the deaths continue and there are way more deaths in Africa. So there are 2 million people dying roughly on average every year from HIV AIDS in Africa from 1995 to 2001. And the deaths just keep going up and up and up. And, and actually they don't peak until almost the mid 2000s. And the reason for that is basically the pharmaceutical companies refuse to sell their products at reasonable prices in Africa. And in some cases refuse to sell their products in Africa at all. Why would they do that? Uh, at least for the adult part, you know, and I, 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 I understand why they wouldn't sell it at a cheap price, but the at all part? Well, I mean, they're just not interested, right? Because it, they weren't going to get any money, mm-hmm. right? 
Um, and, uh, and then they refused to allow Indian and other generics companies from making generic versions of those products and selling mm-hmm. them in Africa. Um, and then they sued Nelson Mandela when uh, South Africa passed a law in 1998 that said that, uh, you know, South Africa could go and buy brand name, by the way, drugs, uh, mm. HIV drugs and others at the cheapest price available globally. So basically saying the South African government could go, if they could find a cheaper price in India for an authorized product, they could buy it and they could bring it back to, uh, to South Africa. And so they, they sued actually Nelson Mandela, then president of, Africa, they put, of South Africa, they put him in the lawsuit as the chief respondent. Um, <laughs> just like, a, like a, just the most sort of evil looking and evil move that you can possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's a very famous story, of course, of CIPLA, the Indian uh, generics company led by Yusuf Hamid, working with folks like Jamie Love, um, who's a, 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 an anti-patent kind of, not anti-patent, but a, a reform activist, IP reform activist, who was very active and still is very active during COVID as well, uh, to basically challenge these companies and offer in 2001, these drugs that, uh, so they were costing $10,000 per patient per year uh, mm-hmm. under these companies. And Yusuf uh, uh, and Cipla offered them at, uh, at $350 per patient per year. So less than a dollar a day to save a life. And that really had a big impact in 2001. And he did that, that forced these companies to the table. There was huge outcry against them and then they kind of stopped their lawsuits and they allowed for, uh, to some degree, generics to be, to be sold in, um, in African countries. But in that time, in 1995 to 2001, when they, A, didn't take reasonable action to make their drugs available equitably in Africa, when, and, and when they were suing the South African government and others, and when they were trying to get the WTO to stop CIPLA from exporting its products and so on and so forth, during that time, uh, uh, 12 million uh, uh, Africans died of AIDS. And if they had you know, bothered to make their drugs available in South Africa, if we had seen that same 50% drop, um, which we saw in the United States, and there's really no reason to believe that we wouldn't have. It's, it's, these are incredibly effective drugs. You might have seen it higher, in fact. What do you mean? I, I think that uh, you know, in Africa, the people's like in compared to America, you're for the same level of disease, you're just more likely to to die earlier. Exactly right. You, so, but even even assuming that you see the yeah. same, only the same drop as you see in America, mm-hmm. six million lives potentially would have been saved. So basically, what I'm saying is, the pharmaceutical companies did a holocaust in Africa, one one holocaust worth of deaths, six mm-hmm. million deaths um, between 1995 and 2001, and and that's. You know, frankly speaking, that's what these companies are like. That's they don't really give a shit about lives being saved or not. Mm-hmm. And they can they can say different things, and they can say that you know these stories are more complex than they seem. But in some sense, they aren't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the problem is, you know, on the one hand, you need profit in order to be sustainable, whatever whatever you're running. I don't think nonprofits are fundamentally sustainable in in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. And so ideally, you want to find a way to make a profit in a reasonable way. You shouldn't shun profit. But you can't, in a business like this, you can't privilege a dollar over a life saved, right? You want mm-hmm. to try and find a way to make these available for as many people as possible, even if not through you, through other people. Um, and I think what's most shocking about this is these companies weren't even selling their, um, you know, their, their products in Africa. It's not like they had any money to lose in Africa mm-hmm. because no one was able to afford $10,000 a patient for you. Per, per year, right? There was no supply demand curve to worry about. There was not right. any demand at that price, right? As in, um, you know, in your 101 economics class, they say if nobody buys it, they'll cut the price. Why didn't they cut the price? So the reason is actually somewhat convoluted, but kind of horrifying. Is it that you would have people buying in, a, in, in South Africa and selling to the US? Is that the... Not even that, because the US government is, is very much on the side of these companies and mm-hmm. would not allow that to happen. No, but rather it's the political outcry that would happen when some congressman in the United States does a hearing and says, why are our healthcare costs, whatever trillions of dollars, mm-hmm. right? You know, in Africa, they can get this drug for 350. Why can't we get it for 350 in the United States? Um, and, and that, just the threat of that was enough to stop them from selling essentially these drugs in Africa at low prices. And actually they still do that today. So there's a drug called Trichofecta made by mm-hmm. a company called Vertex Bio. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful book about them called The Billion Dollar Molecule about their early days, which is a fascinating mm-hmm. sort of read of how biotech companies start. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, it works for cystic fibrosis, which for cases which are otherwise hopeless, um, for especially for young children. Uh, and they just don't sell this drug in India. Uh, and so there's this horrifying story in the New York Times uh, some months ago, uh, front, uh, not front page, but you know, I think it, uh, uh, kind of one of the, the, the front parts of the sort of whatever international section that they have, um, 
in, based in Hyderabad about kids in Hyderabad dying of cystic fibrosis that shows them their parents like emailing, you know, trying to call the consulate, to, uh, the American consulate to see if they can get these, this company Vertex to, to give some uh, compassionate use uh, uh, sort of tablets here in India of, of this drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just not willing to sell it in India at any price, really, it seems. Um, and they're not willing to license generic competitors either. So they're enforcing their IP claim in India, but they're not selling the drug. Um, and and I, I, I can't even steal man a case for this, as in I'm, I'm unable to understand why they're, they're doing this. Is it that if they sell it for too high a price, they'll be forced to reduce it by public? I mean, okay, they haven't been forced to, but like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to un, uh, understand why. I'm sure they have some weird bank shot explanation for why this would eventually reduce their prices. God only knows, but like it's, um, it's clearly bad, right? I think we can all, we can all agree. This is not how it should work. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, you know, that, uh, that fear is a big reason also that I think it's important to do what we're doing at Popex, what hopefully other people will do in Indian biotech, which is we need to own the intellectual property here in India. We need to have control of that. Right. Uh, because unless India secedes from the WTO, and I see no, no, uh, no I, I, I don't think that it's going to happen in exactly. India, ever at least. If we don't control our own destiny when mm-hmm. it comes to these new products, our people, um, you know, and look, I, I, I strongly believe, I have humanistic values, I believe that it, lives matter all over the world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but certainly I have an emotional connection with, with the lives of people here in India, right? And the country that's given me everything. Um, and uh, if we don't control you know, the, the fruits of, of novel research, often, by the way, done by our, uh, our own people, Indian citizens who move abroad and do wonderful academic work uh, in the United States and then bought up by pharmaceutical companies. Indians will continue to die and global pharmaceutical companies will not care. Um, and the same, by the way, is true of, of Africa, the same is true of everywhere else mm-hmm. in the developing world. Uh, unless we, we control um, intellectual property that allows us to save our own people, or at least serves as a bargaining chip when discussions like this come to the table. You know, unless we're real players here, right? We will continue to be treated as second class and we are being treated very much as second class. Um, and so if you combine that with my frustration with the Indian pharmaceutical industry that they don't do any research, right? Um, those two together are uh, the reasons that I decided to start the company because if, uh, if no one else was going to, it seemed obvious to me that, that the only thing that, that was right to do, the only thing that would allow us to have both sort of the latest frontier of medical technology in India at an affordable price, um, but also have the ability to dictate, you know, how that's used uh, and and to ensure that it's used in this country and other parts of the developing world in an equitable way is to actually be doing the work, doing that research ourselves. And we have the talent in India, you know, we have the, we have institutions that are wonderful, um, you know, though, again, I think under-resourced, we have people that are wonderful, again, under-resourced. And, uh, and we have, uh, I think, the the will to to go out and uh, and do these things and to uh, to to sort of actually move the frontier forward. But for whatever reason, whether it's the Indian government, whether it's private industry in India, frankly, whether it's international funders, willingness to support that work financially in India, um, willingness to support that uh, new research and to to build the right infrastructure for that research to be translated, um, is is quite minimal. And that's really the challenge that I think needs to be solved. Right. Um, you know, this was both very emotionally painful and sort of pushing me to uh, think about it more. Um, you didn't have a, I, I understand you didn't have a biology background. How do you, how did you get into this? Uh, at least enough to be able to uh, run a biotech company. So there are lots of biotech companies run by non-bio people. Mm-hmm. Moderna is, is one example. Um, I think really the answer is I felt that I had to. I felt that no one else was doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that at the very beginning, my my skill set that was valuable was really translating the value of what we were trying to do um, scientifically uh, and uh, from a sort of health impact perspective to foreign funders, uh, like, for example, the Gates Foundation, like, for example, Vitalik Badran, who funded us quite heavily, mm-hmm. um, in a way that, uh, unfortunately, our scientists, the folks who, who you know were doing the work initially for the company, weren't able to do. Um, and so that that was really my initial value, uh, and and I think that that's what allowed us to start the company in the first place. So initially, I used my own money actually, and then when I went bankrupt, um, I was able to. Uh, uh, I was, you uh, what? Uh, essentially, uh, went went slightly bankrupt. Okay, uh, I, 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 I I very much 
admire you for this. Almost nobody I know would uh, put the entire birth of fortune on this. But um, but uh, but then we were able to get money from international uh, sort of you know research collaboration agreements essentially that funded our work, um, and I think that wouldn't have been possible. Um, the scientists that, that that we have in the company, while wonderful, don't have those communication skills, don't have the ability to frame um, you know frame what uh, uh, what we were doing in a way that would have allowed us to go and to to go and get those resources. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the second thing is actually a lot of what we do is computationally driven. So uh, you know we were talking about these HIV drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, these HIV drugs uh, are uh, uh, were kind of the, one of the first examples of so-called rational design, um, mm-hmm. which is to say you actually go and take a, a, a 3D a structural representation of a protein that you're targeting. Um, so in the case of protease inhibitors for HIV, it's the HIV uh, sort of protease. Um, and uh, you then actually try to make molecules that target that in a specific way, right? Um, that actually target the structure of that rather than the old approach of let's get a bunch of stuff from the ground or from trees or from like, you know, we have this combinatorial library of chemicals and see what it does, right? Without any clear sort of uh, mechanism of, uh, um, of differentiation at the very beginning, except for the, the empirical tests, right? What we do at PopEx um, and what we're sort of one of an emerging group of companies that's doing is to apply the this sort of concept of of structure based rational design uh, enabled now by machine learning tools that allow us to uh, design new proteins um, in our case antigens uh, that can sort of provide this this broad protection when conditioned on uh, you know on 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 sort of certain structural phenomenon we know to be true with the virus right um, to uh, uh, to make uh, uh, to sort of iterate very rapidly and, and sort of make uh, these these kinds of vaccines these broadly protective vaccines that just weren't possible uh, even a decade ago mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know I have a computer science background I, I sort of dropped uh, out of my PhD program at, uh, at Cornell where I was doing robotics work I'm not a machine learning expert either but I knew enough to be able to um, to help drive our strategy in this direction which I think has been an extraordinarily fruitful direction for the company so on a day-to-day basis um, you know I, I sort of lead our uh, uh, the management of our antigen design work, um, and and really, it's about sort of finding the right pieces from ML and the right pieces from structural biology and the right pieces, um, you know, from um, uh, from uh, uh, from sort of the uh, the experimental tools that that we have to uh, to sort of make the program go faster and to to drive us towards uh, sort of the the conclusions we want to get to, uh, and I think that uh, I'm obviously aided by exceptional scientists. We have we have 40 scientists at the company now. Um, and we're aided by, you know, people who are wonderful at all of these things. Um, but I think I've, you know, been able to, in my own small way, put together the pieces in a way that uh, perhaps others weren't able to. Okay, I, I, I deeply, I very much uh, appreciate you for that. Um, one of the reasons why I got into reading about vaccines and stuff was that, uh, I'm going to take a lighter note now, I, I, I don't want my, my listeners sobbing in the end of this, although it would, it would be good for, for views. Um, you know, one reason I got into vaccines was because I read a lot about uh, I read a, a lot about the effects of bioterror from the effective altruism movement. Uh, my fa- a common friend of ours, Judah, asked me to ask you about it. What do you think of it? <laughs> what do I think of bioterrors? No, uh, what do you think of the rationalist slash effective altruist movement? <laughs> what do I think of the rationalist effective altruist movement? So I, I've I've been kind of rationalist adjacent mm-hmm. since I was in high school, but I've never been an active participant in these communities. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, I I kind of you know have met many of the leading lights. Uh, and actually, a number of friends of mine are now in fairly high positions in whether it's FHI or uh, you know at CEA and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, while I, I appreciate the impact that it had on me when I was younger, uh, like you know, I read HBMOR and like I you know engaged a little bit on the less wrong forums and and so on and so forth. Somehow, um, I've never gotten to Harry Potter and the Matter. It's even entirely too obtuse to. Yeah, I enjoyed that a lot. That, that, that's actually my favorite part of the, of the rationalist community. Mm. Uh, but, and then of course, Late Star Codex, Astral Codex 10 was mm. a, you know, I, I read sort of uh, a lot in, in high school, college, mm. uh, or at the very end of high school and college when, when it kind of started early on. Um, I, um, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of happy that there are people who are trying to think about these problems in, in a systematic way from a kind of first principles perspective. I think that's valuable. And certainly, I've engaged in a lot of first principles thinking for what I've done with, with PopFacts, and that's very important. 
Um, I will say that I think that the uh, something has been lost in the transition from looking at tangible problems. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think the malaria stuff was very tangible. I think pandemic risk is, is also quite tangible, right? Um, and bioterror, sure, is tangible, but it starts becoming a little bit more intangible towards kind of true existential risk, uh, dystopia stuff like the AI stuff that's going on, right? And I, I'm not an expert in that field and I don't claim to be and I have no opinion uh, that's worth sharing here, but I think that there's, there should be a demarcated space for the more tangible problems um, because I think uh, you know, those are problems that, that today can save, you know, millions of lives, right? You look at, you know, for example, tuberculosis, right? Tuberculosis, mm -hmm. we have the BCG vaccine. Um, I don't know, you probably got it um, when, when you were I a kid. I definitely did. <laughs> right. Uh, and so the BCG vaccine is not actually, that's not actually tuberculosis. It's not the same. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it's something else. It's related. Um, but, and it's not very effective in the developing world at the moment. So like lots of people get tuberculosis, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people die of tuberculosis. Um, we should make a better TB vaccine, right? But I haven't seen that, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I haven't seen that as, a, as an EA cause area, right? I think that's, that's something we should probably do, right? Um, and I think that there's uh, something that has been lost in, in sort of tangible cause areas like that, sort of becoming uh, less and less central and, and sort of stuff like AI risk becoming, uh, you know, more and more central. Is bioterrorism a risk? Yes. Um, but the sad reality of this Pradyuma is that today, somebody in any one of many, many labs globally could make a bioterror agent that could have a serious impact. Um, they could do that with today's technology. You don't need new technology to do that. You're never going to be able to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. So you, we need to have better defensive tools and what we're doing and what others are doing to make, right. uh, it, make it possible to make a new vaccine or a vaccine that already works against existing large groups of pathogens mm -hmm. could massively reduce the impact of something like that or even make it a, a non-threat over time. Mm -hmm. But people are always going to be able to do this, right? Um, people are always going to be able to cause great terror um, with relatively modest resources. Um, and I think it speaks something to the goodness of the human species that we haven't. <laughs> that, you know, in general, like, most yeah, people yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the slightly infohazardous way of saying it is that we are, uh, you know, the amount of terror attacks that could have happened so far during anything is far low, is, 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 is far higher than what has actually happened. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and I think, you know, for example, I've seen, so we use, we make use of, of, uh, of synthetic, DNA services like Twist Bio uh, mm. at, at a quite high rate. And so that's mm. a big way. Our workflow is different than it would have been 10 years ago. We can order dozens, hundreds, thousands of new sequences uh, based on our antigen designs, um, which we know to be safe, which we have you know, ways of qualifying to be safe. In fact, what we do is very, very safe compared to you know, lots mm. of other things, right? We don't make new viruses. We're just making uh, you know, antigenic subunits to, uh, to create an immune response. Um, nothing that we do is, is a functional uh, virion or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, functional uh, pathogen of any kind. So there's no gain of function or whatever going on. But, you know, there's been calls to, you know, more regulate these synthetic DNA services and so on and so forth um, to try and ensure that people don't order, you know, some horrible pathogen or some engineered pathogen even worse, right? But the reality is that you don't actually need those services. You can do recombinant DNA on your own in the lab, like the old school way, right? Um, and... You know, you can do it with relatively minimal uh, sort of uh, reagents, relatively minimal resources. That's always that the cat is out of the bag, right? So I think our best shot is to concentrate on defense and build a strong defensive mechanism such that when a new pathogen is identified, we can take existing vaccines and therapeutics that are going to work likely for it and deploy them immediately, as well as engineer new vaccines and therapeutics within days or weeks, right? Um, and potentially maybe even hours down the road, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, um, and we build distributed biomanufacturing so that we can make these globally cheaply and equitably so that you know, everyone can access them as necessary. Um, but I, I think that there's, um, you know, bioterror is a risk we're gonna have to deal with going forward just as nuclear terror is a risk the, that we have to deal with. The reason why I asked you was because I wondered if you had applied for funding from Open Philanthropy, which looks like it might be a funder for this. Did they do fund other vaccines? Although I think more, more so for malaria than anything else. The EA pitch for what we're doing is very simple. The next yeah. pandemic is gonna come from a family of viruses we already know about, right? Mm -hmm. Look at beta coronaviruses. We had SARS-1, we had MERS, now we've had SARS-2, right? 
the -hmm. reason that we were able to get SARS-2 vaccines, right, we were able to get SARS-2 vaccines quickly was because we had done all this research on SARS-1 and MERS Mm -hmm. to some degree, right? Mm -hmm. Let's do that, but let's make a vaccine that's going to work for probably an entire genera or family of pathogens. Now, let's do that for filoviruses like Ebola, which we're all shit scared of if that evolves in a particular direction, right? Let's do that for influenza so that if there's another pandemic influenza strain, we have a, a workable universal influenza vaccine. And I think with, with the current protein engineering, uh, protein design techniques, what we're using, I think that's actually possible for the first time. And even if that vaccine doesn't work against the new threat, it's probably going to be much closer to what works against the new threat than making a vaccine only against a single pathogen, mm-hmm. right? So I think there's a really strong, if you really, if you're EA, you really believe in uh, preventing pandemics as a cause area. Certainly I believe in preventing pandemics as a cause area. Um, And having this nice spillover effect of actually helping people who are dying from pathogens that exist today, that we face in the world already today, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a win-win, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think that's the sort of work uh, that I think, uh, you know, I think my understanding of the spirit of the EA movement is that that's the sort of work that should get funded. Um, so if you are, uh, if anyone's listening who's interested in funding this, please reach out. Uh, but also we're, you know, we're, we're hiring folks and this is something that, that is, uh, uh, that is exciting. What's your mission. biggest constraint? Uh, always, I said, always cash. Um, okay. you know, I think a, a second is a close second is, you know, we've been hiring people, uh, in so very specific domains. So in protein design was a very small field still. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had some very good hires in that field, but we've gotten very lucky, I think. Um, and in machine learning, folks who want to uh, apply machine learning to uh, protein design uh, for broadly protective vaccines mm-hmm. and for other kinds of therapeutics. So we, we have both those roles open on our website at jobs.popx.com if, if this is something and potentially your audience may have. Yeah, yeah, actually, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I might contact uh, ATK's uh, jobs board and, and, and ask them to list these. Yeah, yeah, potentially, potentially. That, that, that's a good that's a good thought. Um, so we're very interested. We're very interested in, in in getting good folks in protein design and good folks in machine learning that we can train about protein design, um, and we can get to, to to work with us. And actually, you know, Eliezer even I think in his I don't know if it was on Less Wrong or was in his uh, recent uh, catastrophic article uh, wrote wrote that he if he if it was up to him he would uh, he would carve out an exception for AI specifically targeting non-language models, uh, targeting uh, you know better biotechnology. Uh, sort of uh, medications, uh, you know, products mm-hmm. like that. So, uh, you know, I, this is potentially even even Elisa approved as a <laughs> working on. If you are interested in machine learning, <laughs> yeah, no, um, extremely extremely interesting conversation. I I I can't remember a time where I've been so um, I've had so much fun talking to someone. Um, really, thanks for coming along. I'll... No, happy to, man. It's a it's a lot of fun chatting with you too. I enjoy. Um, telling the story. I've told the story a lot. This is good motivation for me to get the blog post up. <laughs> because everyone asks me, that's the first question is why, 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 how, why? <laughs> Who are you and why are you doing this? <laughs> um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of settling in. Uh, we, the company started officially in July of 2021 and kind of ran out of money very quickly. And then we kind of were able to get that next tranche of money in December, January of 2021 again to restart operations effectively. And so, you know, we've, we've been going, I think really at full strength or, you know, kind of full steam ahead since then. It's been almost a year and a half of, of you know, full, full-time work. Um, and it's just uh, so much more exciting and rewarding than I could have thought, um, given the circumstances were just kind of sheer bloody minded, like someone has to do this. Um, but I've really enjoyed the work and I've enjoyed the science and I am sort of having a little bit of a, uh, a second education or a third education, depending on how you might count it. What was your What were your first and second, v- respectively? Well, I I started, um, you know, I, I did a, a a bunch of work in computer science, um, mm-hmm. both as an undergrad and as a grad student in distributed systems and robotics. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a very successful academic, to be clear, <laughs> uh, but I published a couple of papers and like had a few interesting insights. I thought. Um, I and then in, the, in between that, I did sociology research at Yale. Um, okay. And, and published a couple of papers in that field. Um, including on some stuff on preference ranking and stuff like that, um, and uh, and that was very interesting. And that yes, was kind of like is sociology over like sociology people hate sociology among everybody. And this is you know it, it, it's a it's a four letter word in, in in many intellectual circles. Does it deserve that re- reputation? Oh, I, I, you know, we did quant sociology. Okay, so like, okay. It's really not not the kind of like you know uh, ethnography, not kind of qualitative ethnographies. No, 
Uh, so I worked with Nicholas Christakis, who's a little bit of a um, a star in the intellectual dark web, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, as is, uh, but you know, is a, is a, is a wonderful guy. Um, but uh, uh, you know, we we worked on 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 very quantitative problems around like you know, the, one of one of the papers we published, which I which I liked a lot, was um, uh, if we get people to do uh, sort of preference ranking over arbitrary, uh, you know, n letter uh, sort of words that we invent, right? Do people have consistent preference ranking over those arbitrary words? And that was part of a larger experiment we were doing, applying those identifiers mm-hmm. um, to, to a sort of simulated social network problem for people's kind of names and resource names. And the answer was yes, we got very consistent. <laughs> like we could very consistently figure out using kind of ELO head-to-head rankings, right? Um, you know, whether certain, you know, very popular words, words that were very unpopular, controversial words where some people rank them very highly, some people rank them very low. And this was quite consistent across. Uh, a bunch of different runs and that that had a very serious downstream impact on the other experiment we were running so we tried to really systematically try and eliminate sources of error even in these very constrained invented domains that we were doing these experiments in um so that i enjoyed and that kind of social that kind of quant social science education was, was a kind of second education for me and bio and ml uh, and the intersection thereof have been kind of a uh, a third one um including also all the fascinating regulatory stuff about how to get vaccines approved because that's a whole mm. different beast mm. um, and i spent almost like a month and a half last year writing a, a pre-ind so not even a formal filing the fda but basically a request for comment on what we were doing and feedback um, and then that whole process really uh, you know was was very interesting to see because you know we ended up not using a consultant to do it we ended up not hiring someone to do that regulatory work but i kind of i did it with with our scientific team um and so that was very eye opening as well so i feel like i'm you know i'm getting the opportunity to learn things that i never would have learned and and to sort of see inside uh the beast so to speak of 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 bio and pharma in a way that i think few people get the opportunity to explore all right uh that was a phenomenal uh, in, uh interview i uh, really loved ha- uh, having you on sadly i have to run now for another one so